0: Why did NATO engage in an illegal war on Yugoslavia 22 years ago? How did the U.S. force the creation of independent Kosovo and for what reason? Did the U.S. truly know the weapons of mass destruction charges in Iraq were false? What does the presidency of pro-war with Iraq hawk Joe Biden mean for the future of for wars in Iran and other countries? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we continue our look at past wars started in March by focusing on the wars in Yugoslavia in 1999 and Iraq in 2003. For our first half hour, we hear a documentary on Yugoslavia featuring Michel Chosodovsky, Zvidian Jovanovic, James Bissett and Scott Taylor. And in our second half hour... Former U.N. Chief Weapons Inspector Scott Ritter addresses the Iraq War and the claims of weapons of mass destruction. On this week's program, The Ides of March, Part 3, false pretexts galore in the wars in Yugoslavia and Iraq. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 26, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on occupied Anishinaabe the homeland of the Metis and historical territory of Nahioak and the Dakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today. From thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Several European countries are now reinstating lockdowns and restrictions fearing a third wave. Vaccination and the Green Pass are presented as the only way out of the pandemic. The Green Pass is being promoted as a temporary solution, but many believe it will remain in place long after the pandemic is over. The European Parliament and Member States are rushing to vote on the proposal this week. One can only marvel at how legislators can decide, without debate, on such an important issue that violates fundamental principles of the Treaty of the European Union and violates individual rights. That comes from the article, European Union to Vote This Week on Vaccination Travel Passport, posted March 24th, originally published in Children's Health Defense. Air and naval forces that have greater mobility are also equipped with hypersonic weapons. These weapons open a new phase of the nuclear arms race, making the New START Treaty, just renewed by the U.S. and Russia, largely outdated. This race passes more and more from the quantitative level, number and power of nuclear warheads, to the qualitative level, speed, penetrating capacity, and geographical location of the the nuclear delivery vehicles. In the event of an attack or presumed attack, The response is increasingly entrusted to artificial intelligence, which must decide the nuclear missile's launch in a few seconds or fractions of a second. It exponentially increases the possibility of a nuclear war by mistake, a risk that occurred several times during the Cold War. That comes from the article, U.S. Hypersonic Missiles in Europe, Five Minutes from Moscow, by Manlio Dinucci. Posted March 24th, originally published in Italian on Il Manifesto. In order to compete and live up to the constant accusations of Washington of quote-unquote militarization of space, Beijing and Moscow have joined forces to reach Mars. Currently, the most reliable way of reaching space are Russian launch vehicles, and SpaceX is attempting to match it and provide its technology to the U.S. government. Elon Musk's efforts are still short, as the latest test showed. Another setback to U.S. efforts is that as a result of the constant accusations and claims of militarization, Russia withdrew from the American lunar project Deep Space Gateway. Washington has proven itself as a disloyal partner when it comes to sharing the glory and resources of space. That comes from the article under the headline Video, the brand new space race. Who will reach Mars first? Who will colonize the moon? Posted March 24th, originally published at Southfront. Topping the list in total wealth growth are California at $551 billion, Washington at $134.6 billion, and New York at $116.4 billion. The top three states with the greatest percentage increase in wealth are Michigan at 164%, Arizona at 110%, and Hawaii at 107%. Billionaire wealth growth is calculated between March 18th, 2020 and March 18th, 2021, based on Forbes data compiled in this report by ATF and IPS. March 18th is used as the unofficial beginning of the crisis because, by then, most federal and state economic restrictions responding to the virus were in place. March 18th was also the date that Forbes picked to measure billionaire wealth for the 2020 edition of its annual Billionaires Report, which provided a baseline that ATF and IPS compare periodically with real-time data from the Forbes website. That comes from the article, Billionaire Wealth, Who Are the Ten Biggest Pandemic Profiteers? by Chuck Collins, posted March 24th, In our review of past acts of major warfare launched in the month of March, one that sticks out and may even have set a standard by which future acts of warfare were launched was the war against Yugoslavia, beginning March 24th and lasting 78 days. It was expressed as a humanitarian war, and thus there was a responsibility to protect civilians from ethnic cleansing. That pretext, as you will hear, was false, and the war itself generated much more strife and violence than the actions within the state, which forces were mobilized to contain. Over the next 20 minutes, you will hear audio clips from a past presentation of the Global Research News Hour, airing on the 22nd of March, 2019. Presenters include Professor Michel Chosodovsky, Professor of Economics and the founder and Director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Zvidian Jovanovic, President of the Belgrade Forum for a World of Equals and who served as a Yugoslavia Minister of Foreign Affairs from 1998 to 2000, James Bissett, Canada's former ambassador to Yugoslavia, and Scott Taylor, a former soldier and journalist reporting from the ground in Yugoslavia during the war. We'll start with analysis by Michelle Chosodovsky.
1: There were three components to the destabilization of Yugoslavia one is economic warfare which started in the early '80s the, the IMF World Bank reforms ultimately leading to the demise of the industrial sector the second are was the insurgencies and these insurgencies were initially were in Bosnia as well as in, in Kosovo and in that context you also had a you had Islamic insurgencies. Al- Al-Qaeda was affiliated both, affiliated and supportive of the Bosnian Muslim Army and subsequently the Kosovo Liberation Army in Kosovo. And the third element, of course, is, is, the, is military intervention, di- direct military intervention, which uh, occurred in March uh, 1999. The turning point is the early 80s. Uh, where the standard of living starts to collapse under the brunt of, of these reforms. And then in the, later, in the latter part of the 80s, the World Bank implements what, what in, in essence was a bankruptcy program. It, it's a program which essentially phases out uh, the industrial sector and obliges the, the manufacturing base of the country to declare bankruptcy. Uh, I won't get into the details, but that is really very, very important. And then there's another, uh, watershed date, which is crucial, and that's January 1, 1990, when the, the IMF, supported by Western creditors, um, freezes the transfer payments from the Belgrade government to the governments of the, the state governments, the republics plus the autonomous provinces. Uh, including Kosovo, and what that does essentially it breaks the federation. You, you, we have it in Canada: federal-provincial transfers. So what happened on on January first, nineteen ninety, is crucial because it breaks the whole structure of the federation, and ultimately it leaves the the republics of the federation to their own to their own devices. And that was the trigger mechanism which which subsequently led to partition. But I should mention that in 1984, and we're under the Reagan administration, there was a secret document entitled NSDD 133, Secret and Sensitive, uh, which um, essentially um, points to the need on the part of of the U.S. administration to carve up Yugoslavia into a number of small proxy states. That's
0: a 1984 document. That's a
1: 1984 document, National Security Decision Directive 133, entitled U.S. Policy Towards Yugoslavia. It was declassified, and what it does is sets a foreign policy framework for the destabilization of Yugoslavia's model of, of uh, market socialism, and the establishment of a U.S. sphere of influence in Southeast Eastern Europe, and then eventually, of course, that led, in fact, to the establishment of a of one of uh, America's largest uh, military bases in Kosovo, which is called Tambone Steel.
2: Security Council has, has been passing several uh, resolutions all of them um, demanding uh, uh, stop uh, to armament, training, organization, and financing of uh, terrorists uh, in Kosovo and Metohia. But at the same time, uh, uh, secret services of Western countries um, uh, on the spot have been uh, uh, doing just the opposite, uh, continuing... uh, regardless to the uh, the, uh, U.N. Security Council decisions. So um, thus uh, they prepared the uprising uh, of uh, terrorism uh, in Kosovo and Metohia in the uh, spring and in the uh, uh, summer of uh, 1998. Uh, there were meetings between leaders of Serbia and leaders uh, of uh, Albanian uh, national community in Kosovo and Metohija. Uh, they agreed uh, on a number of occasions uh, to uh, stop terrorism and uh, uh, to uh, bring about a peaceful uh, solution for the status of Kosovo and Metohija within Serbia uh, and uh, uh, the the representative of United States who were in Rambouillet uh, they presented the so-called Rambouillet uh, document uh, in a final stage of negotiations demanding that Serbia Yugoslavia accept occupation of the whole country and capitulation that uh, uh, American NATO troops uh, could be stationed uh, all over Yugoslavia and without any responsibility, uh, be it administrative, be it uh, civil or even criminal responsibility. And uh, this meant uh, really uh, Capitulation which was not um, uh, acceptable. Uh, Yugoslav Serbian delegation in Rambouillet accepted all political provisions but did not accept parts of that document uh, related to military occupation. Those were parts two, five, and seven. Uh, and uh, uh, this uh, led uh, to, uh, to uh, this was uh, the the reason that uh, the, the uh, nato advanced to um, bomb uh, to uh, to issue um, act order for initiation of military intervention of the aggression uh, well uh, they then staged a so called um a massacre of civilians in the place uh, of Raczak in Kostor, uh, while it was uh, one legitimate um, uh, anti-terrorist action of um, Serbian security forces. Ambassador uh, William Walker, uh, a person who had experience uh, uh, in supporting contras in Latin America, in Nicaragua, and the other uh, places in, in Latin America. He was nominated uh, to be head of uh, OEC uh, verification mission, but actually Great. turned to be a mission only for preparing uh, uh, NATO aggression, NATO military attack on Yugoslavia.
0: Great. He
2: was saying to his uh, collaborators, to his assistants, uh, uh, any price uh, should be paid uh, to stage to. to uh, station uh, NATO troops in Kosovo and Metokhia. And uh, this was the technology which led to uh, the NATO aggression of uh, uh, March the 24, 1999. 6,000 of uh, civilians were uh, seriously wounded. Um, uh, about 80, uh, not about exactly, 87 children were killed uh, during the aggression to compel uh, the government of Serbia and of Yugoslavia uh, to accept uh, occupation they were uh, they were indiscriminately bombing and destroying civilian infrastructure bridges uh, factories schools um, kindergartens uh, hospitals even uh, the the the, the children's hospitals and so on all over they were also hitting at the historic monuments so these were um, just some of the crimes and the crime in that general crime of aggression was to you uh, that they used um, uh, uh, they used missiles with depleted uranium uh, about 15 to 20 tons of um, Missiles with depleted uranium um, were thrown indiscriminately all over uh, Serbia. They they were using so-called cluster bombs. Uh, They were using uh, um, graphite bombs to destroy um, electric stations and transformers and uh, uh, electric transport lines and uh they they, uh, they were leaving hospital schools and uh, uh, all civilian um, establishments without electricity meaning without refrigerations and so on so it was uh really um anti human uh, it was uh very uh, uh indiscriminate way of destruction and sowing death all over. Uh, The humanitarian
3: intervention, so-called, resulted in the fact that the Albanians in Kosovo, who were armed and trained, many of them, the Kosovo Liberation Army, it was called, uh, went back into Kosovo after their training in Albania and in Turkey and began to assassinate Serbian mayors. Serbian policemen or security forces, and and caused uh, an armed uprising. Uh, Naturally, Serbia uh, and Milosevic decided they had to put that armed rebellion down, and they intervened militarily with their security forces, and we had, in effect, a small civil war. I say small, because in the five or ten years of unrest in Kosovo and the fighting that er eventually erupted, only about 2,000 casualties took place. There were more people displaced, but a lot of them were displaced by the fighting that was going on, not by ethnic cleansing. It, <clears throat> a very minor sort of armed rebellion. Uh, wow. It was being put down ruthlessly, I, I admit that, but the fact of the matter is they were fighting ruthless people. So, I mean, on the basis of that very small uh, eruption, while well, in, in other parts of Africa, and Sierra Leone, in other parts of the world, there were much larger conflicts going on. But they used that as an excuse to essentially take Kosovo away from Serbia and to neutralize Serbia for geopolit- geopolitical reasons, basically. Uh, it was the first time that uh, NATO violated its own Article I of the treaty. And I'm an old Cold War warrior, and I was very proud of NATO during the Cold War. But the Article I of the NATO treaty said, in effect, that NATO would never... Use force or threaten to use force in the resolution of international disputes, and would always act in accordance with the United Nations Charter. Wow. Uh, that all of that principle was violated by the bombing of, of Serbia in 1999, yeah. at, and it at a dreadful precedent. The tribunal, the Hague Tribunal, uh, was set up by the Americans. It was. Uh, uh, squeezed through the Security Council under, I think, false pretensions. pretensions. And uh, it was not only financed by the Americans, it was staffed by the Americans. They provided the money for the jail in The Hague to keep these war criminals in. They bought the war, the judges and the lawyers there. I mean, it was a complete travesty of justice. And I think it, it should be the subject of study by all law schools as how uh, the major democratic countries of the world would would create a court that was much worse in many ways of a kangaroo court. Almost all of the people brought before the court primarily were Serbs. Uh, The trial of Milosevic that dragged on and on became an embarrassment to the court because Milosevic destroyed, I mean, one of the witnesses brought forward before him. Uh, He was eventually, uh, some say, murdered in in, uh, the hay because he he was not really able to be... They wouldn't be have been able to find him guilty, although they would have found him guilty, because everyone that comes before them are found guilty if they were Serb. Uh, it was a, a complete travesty, and it was set up uh, in conjunction with the concept that, uh, you know, humanitarian intervention, the, the responsibility to protect, that was used by the Americans primarily, Uh in Yugoslavia, and certainly with the setting up of the court. But it it was setting a pattern uh, uh, which has been following ever since then. Yugoslavia was the first country that was targeted to be basically destroyed because it, it, for geopolitical reasons, the Americans did not like the idea that Serbia was friendly with Russia, was in a geographical important part of the Balkans, and had to be brought down. Uh, that was the beginnings of the breakup of Yugoslavia, but it continued with that, and uh, they were determined to get uh, Kosovo, uh, uh, partly because it it was a country that they would create and would have as as a subject person uh, entity to do with law whatever they wanted it to do. It's not by accident the first largest military base built uh, in the world after by the United States after uh, the Vietnam War was. Uh, steel in, in Kosovo, uh, and it was occupied in violation of the U.N. resolution that settled the Kosovo-Serb conflict, Resolution 1244, which re- reinforced the sovereignty of Serbia over Kosovo. That was totally, totally neglected, or just t- t- tossed aside. Uh, so, I mean, the court was also set up because the pattern that followed and was successful in Yugoslavia has followed through there. We've, we've had the cases of, uh, of Libya, of Iraq, uh, of Ukraine more recently. And the pattern is that uh, if they want to get rid or get, uh, have interest in a country that is important to them geopolitically, uh, they target the leader. First, you destabilize the country, you stop giving them international loans, you ban them from the World Bank, you hurt the economy so that people are unhappy and discontented, you destabilize it. Set up NGOs in the country to agitate for more a change in the ruler. You bribe opposition parties, media, to demonize the leader and the political power uh, that you want to uh, dispose of. That that's the first stage of it. Uh, and and it's it's happening all the time, and, uh, and it still is happening. I'm afraid today.
0: Speaking so of...
3: that's why
4: it's historically important to understand what happened. It's... They led us into the first, you know, the the, the um, UN uh, resolution 1244 had been signed, and there was to be this. The Serbs were to withdraw their um, artillery, their anti-aircraft artillery, and then the bombing was to stop, and then the NATO troops were to come in on the ground. But unexpectedly, this small contingent of Russians came through, and everyone thought World War III was about to erupt and we were at ground zero. So that was an interesting times. I mean, the, the Serbs that were in Pristina were welcoming the, the columns of Russian tanks, like as if they were liberators. It was a, quite an emotional moment. And then, once, I mean, the, the the bulk of the Serbian armor and artillery was pulling out, um, and the NATO rolled in, and then suddenly the, the streets were filled with, like, there was still a, a large number of Albanians that had lived. in in Pristina throughout the entire duration, they appeared on the streets. And as the Serbian civilians were withdrawing, I I went out on a bus with them, and there was a gauntlet uh, that they had to run, and the Albanians would stone the buses, or they would throw, uh, like, four-by-fours under the tires to try to disable the cars. And if they could, they would drag the occupants out and beat them. And this was done while British soldiers lined the road, um, supposedly to protect the Serbian civilians, but they did nothing to intervene. Uh, We had windows on our bus uh, smashed with rocks as we drove through. I was on a crowded bus coming out. It was terrifying. Um, But the fact that we would have been so outraged that Serbs had, you know, sort of supervised this exodus of Albanians when they were originally fleeing, and then for our soldiers to be there supervising this on the way out, um, you know, two wrongs don't make a right, and it was just to see it like that. These were civilians. there were little kids on the bus. It was old ladies. I mean, and the fact that we were being terrorized under the, the watchful eye of, of British soldiers that were standing there doing nothing. It was,
1: As a former NATO soldier,
4: it was very uh, very disappointing, i say, as a soldier, that, uh, that NATO would have been used, which was supposed to be a collective defense uh, against an outside threat, would have been used in, in an offensive manner over something which was an internal issue, an insurgency, if you will, which, uh, I mean, the, 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 the true nature of the leadership of the Uchika, the KLA, the, the Hashim Tachis, the Agam uh, Ramush These guys were all at some point indicted for, for crimes, either they were in Croatia or wherever they committed their war crimes. Some of them witnessed by Canadian soldiers, and we, uh, Agam Cechko in particular, he was at the uh, the Medak pocket when the uh, Croatian army uh, massacred civilians in, in front of Canadians. And there was you know, uh, a minor skirmish there between my old battalion and uh, Agam Cechko, who at the time was an Albanian, Kos- Kosovar, serving in the Croatian army because he just hated Serbs. And they committed these atrocities, which then they subsequently in, in 1995. Cheku was the artillery commander that shelled Kanin, and Andrew Leslie, who's now a member of parliament, was the Canadian colonel. He was in Kanin. He wanted this man brought to justice. He never was brought to justice. Instead, he was made the commander of the Uchika, and then Canada provided him with an air force. So, no surprise, I mean, this this criminal trio Cheku, Tachi, and Haradinai um, are running a, a criminal state. Uh, and people of, of Kosovo are suffering. I mean, it's one of the poorest regions in all of Europe. The crime rate is the highest in all of Europe. They have the highest ratio of prostitutes to civilians in anywhere in the world. Um, you know, it's, it, people are leaving. I mean, even though they're independent, they're, they're, they're away from the, the yoke of the Serbian oppression, as they say, um, they're still leaving in droves. I mean, so what did we actually accomplish?
0: You just heard about the launching of the war in Yugoslavia with guests Michel Chosodovsky, Zividian Jovanovic, James Bissett and Scott Taylor. After this brief break, we'll look at the March 19, 2003 launch of the war in Iraq. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. There was a massive military assault on Iraq on this week in 2003. Operation Iraqi Freedom was underway and pounded the country. The pretext were the mighty weapons of mass destruction that all the authorities claimed he had. However, after an active search... No one found any weapons of mass destruction. This might have been a shock to anyone who watched Colin Powell's demonstration at the UN, but it was hardly a surprise to none other than the chief UN weapons specialist assigned to the mission, Scott Ritter. He served from 1991 to 1998, and having stated Iraq had no significant weapons of mass destruction capabilities, he was referred to by the New York Times as, quote, the loudest and most credible Skeptic of the Bush administration's contention that Hussein was hiding weapons of mass destruction, unquote. Scott Ritter is also a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and author of Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump, and more recently of Deal Breaker, Donald Trump and the Unmaking of the Iran Nuclear Deal. He currently works as a columnist for Huffington Post, RT Op-Ed, and the American Conservative. Mr. Ritter joined me recently to share his thoughts about the Iraq War 18 years later. I remembered on uh, community radio listening to your entire explanation for how you knew about any weapons of mass destruction that Saddam might have been sitting on. I'm not going to ask you for that entire explanation again, but maybe just point out a a few, one or two points that should utterly decimate everything that Colin Powell asserted into his explanation?
5: Well, first and foremost, we have to start with the premise that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. I think a lot of people um, get confused when, you know, they hear people say, well, we found no weapons of mass destruction. Um, And and then they say, well, wait a minute, but now you're telling me they had it, and, uh, you know, I'm confused. no, Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. They had chemical weapons programs, biological weapons programs, nuclear weapons programs, and they had long range ballistic missile programs. All four of these categories were prescribed, banned by the United Nations Security Council in its resolution creating an inspection capability to go in Iraq and uh, oversee the dismantling destruction or rendering harmless of these weapons. That was resolution 687 passed in April, 1991. Long story short, um, despite a lot of kicking, screaming, lying, deceiving, deceiving on the part of Iraq, by 1995, uh, the UN weapons inspectors had accounted for upwards of 95% of Iraq's WMD capability. That, that is both in terms of the weapons and the means of producing those weapons. Moreover, We were monitoring the totality of Iraq's industrial infrastructure uh, with the most advanced intrusive arms control regime in the history of arms control. And we knew for certain that Iraq was not reconstituting this capability. Now, there was some unaccounted for material. About 5% of uh, Iraq's capability was unaccounted for. But even though we couldn't tell you exactly what happened to it, For the most part, we could say it's no longer relevant. To give you an example, when Colin Powell held up that little vial of white powder uh, and he he said this could kill, you know, millions of people if released, Um, he was insinuating that inside that vial was dried powdered anthrax. Um, We know that Iraq produced anthrax agent, uh, but they produced it only as a liquid sludge. They never produced it in dry powdered form. They didn't have the ability to do so. They never tried to do so. Um, So Colin Powell was right off the bat lying or at least deceiving people when he held that up. The liquid anthrax produced by Iraq had a shelf life uh, that could be measured in terms of no more than three years. That is, if they produced it and stored it three years later, it would just be inert sludge. The only way a chemical or a biological weapons warhead would kill you is if it landed on your head. Because if it missed you and landed on the ground next to you, it would just split open and spew nothing into the ground. Um, The last anthrax was produced by Iraq in early 1991. We then destroyed their capability of production, and we eliminated the raw materials necessary to produce. So even if Iraq had hidden some anthrax from us, by 1995, it would have been useless sludge. And by the time Colin Powell presented his case to the Security Council in 2003, um, it was definitely, and we can make the same case about its chemical weapons. Um, we know that its nuclear weapons program was totally eliminated. There was nothing left. Um, and on their ballistic missiles, um, we accounted for you know, every single one of Iraq's long-range ballistic missiles. Uh, we could tell you what happened to them, how they were destroyed, uh, where, you know, where the remains are. Um, Iraq did have a ballistic missile program. Uh, That produced missiles less than 150 kilometers in, in range. This was permitted, but we were monitoring it to make sure that it wasn't expanding. So, what you know, the United States was compelled to admit in the fall of 1998 that it had no new intelligence information about Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, that the totality of its understanding of Iraqi WMD came from the information gathered by the weapons inspection teams that I and others led in Iraq. So if I can sit there and tell you as of December 1998 that Iraq had no viable weapons of mass destruction program and that they weren't in the process of reconstituting one, for Colin Powell to make a case to the Security Council or for the Bush administration to make the case to the world and the American public that Iraq did have this capability, they would need to demonstrate how they knew this. They would need to demonstrate that they have collected some new information that shows that Iraq from the period of time when inspectors left in December 1998 to the fall of 2002, when the case for war was being aggressively pushed, that Iraq somehow reconstituted this capability. So there should be hard intelligence information. The U.S. could not provide that. And this is why every one of their assertions need to be treated with skepticism, because I can tell you straight out. That as of December 1998, uh, while Iraq wasn't 100 percent disarmed, and while there was concern that if weapons inspectors left Iraq could reconstitute its programs, I could state with certainty that Iraq had no viable weapons of mass destruction program. And unless proof was provided of reconstitution and uh, you know the, the, the restarting of production facilities, one could not simply assert that Iraq had a weapons of mass destruction program in 2002-2003, Worthy of, um, uh, you know, causes life for war.
0: So I guess uh, having ruled out the possibility that, that weapons of mass destruction were the actual cause, uh, I'm wondering if, if you'd care to, to stagger a guess as to what was the actual reason the troops went in. I mean, what, what given where the troops were located, given the aftermath, what do you think was the real reason they went in there?
5: Well, the real reason was regime change, plain and simple. Uh, This is a policy that wasn't unique to the administration of George W. Bush. In fact, it was a policy that he inherited from the Clinton administration, who inherited the same policy from the administration of um, George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, People tend to forget history, but uh, I'll give you a quick reminder. In the uh, spring of 1991, in the aftermath of Operation Desert Storm, Uh, when the UN Security Council resolutions were passed uh, calling for Iraq's disarmament, they were linked to the continuation of economic sanctions. That is, sanctions could not be lifted uh, on Iraq until which time they were certified as being disarmed by UN inspectors. The policy of the United States was never to support disarmament. The policy of the United States was to support a finding of noncompliance by Iraq so that sanctions could be continued and an effort a comprehensive effort to undermine the the, the regime, destabilize the regime of Saddam Hussein, uh, until which time a solution could be found to remove him from power. Um, This was the stated policy of James Baker, Secretary of State for uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, This policy was inherited by the Clinton administration. It became the stated policy of the Clinton administration. Indeed, in 1998, near the tail end of the Clinton administration, um, Congress actually passed something called the Iraq Liberation Act, which made it official U.S. policy to overthrow the regime of Saddam Hussein. Bill Clinton signed it, and this policy was inherited by George W. Bush. The sole purpose of the Iraq War was to remove Saddam Hussein from power. Um, weapons of mass destruction were simply the the excuse, the facilitator uh, for you know to try and uh, coat uh, this this uh, war effort with a veneer of, um, of legitimacy by citing Security Council resolutions, etc. It failed because the Security Council uh, and the United Nations would not support this war. This, this was an illegal war of aggression waged by the United States, void of any legitimacy uh, founded in Security Council resolutions. But it was a war of regime change in which weapons of mass destruction were merely um, you know, the excuse.
0: Well, wasn't I mean? There was a, a long period of time where there were sanctions that were thrust on the on the uh, community, and that, that had that itself was an act of war. It seems to me, and I so basically the the war it it, it never actually ended, but there was a, a space of time where all those sanctions were in place, and and they just needed some. Re- was, was is it possible they could have found some other way of getting rid of him? Uh, in in the interim or were, were they determined at like some point we are going to go in by force?
5: Well let's let's remember that when sanctions were first imposed uh, on Iraq citing the Security Council resolution 687, uh, then acting CIA director um, uh, Robert Gates, I believe, um, and the CIA put forward an estimate that said, We don't expect Saddam Hussein to be able to survive the continuation of economic sanctions for more than six months. His army has been destroyed, his economy is in ruins. If we just keep these sanctions in place, we can promote enough dissension inside Iraq that somebody who looks like Saddam, sounds like Saddam, acts like Saddam, but isn't named Saddam, will kill him and take over and we'll be happy because all we want is Saddam Hussein, the man removed from power. Why? Because in October of 1990, George Herbert Walker Bush gave a speech in Cincinnati, Ohio, where he likened Saddam Hussein to Adolf Hitler. He said that um, this is the Middle East equivalent of Adolf Hitler, and um, the invasion of Kuwait requires Nuremberg-like retribution, which means that no matter what, Saddam Hussein could not politically be allowed to survive. He was a political liability to the presidency of the United States. George Herbert Walker Bush signed... A lethal finding authorizing the CIA to kill Saddam Hussein. Um, they weren't unable to do so. Bill Clinton continued this finding. A lot of people um, don't realize, but you know, under the Clinton administration, there were at least three concerted coup attempts uh, against Saddam Hussein, run by the CIA and their British counterparts, MI6. George Herbert Walker Bush or George W. Uh, w Bush continued this policy. Um, you know, the CIA had a lethal finding, authorizing it to use whatever means necessary to kill Saddam, but they were unable to do so. Saddam was too well protected. The only option left to the United States was either to see the sanctioned regime collapse because the entire world realized that what was going on against Iraq was a crime, that the uh, suffering of the Iraqi people was could not be supported by uh, this, this baseless contention that somehow they had weapons of mass destruction. Um so the only option left to the Bush administration was to invade and occupy Iraq, and that's what they did. They, got, they invaded, they got rid of Saddam, and they, uh, they occupied that nation.
0: Well, of course, there was, at the time, there was significant support for the war at the outset, but the war was also heavily protested in major cities around the world. And I, I can't quite remember another war since then that, that a war was so forcefully opposed. What do you make of that? I mean, did, did people just come to the conclusion that wars can't be stopped, so they just gave up, or, or what?
5: I think there was a, look. I participated in many of these um, protests. Um, I was a proud marcher in London when two million people took to the streets, led by George Galloway, um, and I, I participated in a, in a you know one of the demonstrations in in, in New York City. I'm not a demonstrator. You know, by by nature, but you know, this was a war that I opposed, and I felt that it was important to lend my my voice and my presence to to this effort. But the, at the end of the day, um, unless demonstrations come attached with political levers that can control um, you know who is in office, uh, they're meaningless. The government will ignore them. And even though the rest of the world was united in opposition to this war, at the end of the day, this was a war fought. Uh, to promote domestic U.S. Um, concerns. The thing about the demonstrations is that they didn't stop the war and they were never gonna stop the war. It was, uh, it was an act of um, you know, asserting uh, you know, a moral uh, authority that was ignored by the political authority. Um, the, 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 in the United States, remember, for everybody demonstrating in the streets, there was at least one other person at home supporting the war. Um, Iraq had been demonized by the American media for more than, than a decade. Saddam Hussein went from being one of America's closest allies in 1990 to being, again, the Middle East equivalent of Adolf Hitler overnight. And then for a decade, we, we, you know, we demonized this man. Um, and in and, and doing so, we demonized the Iraqi people and the nation of Iraq to the point that the average American didn't view the Iraqis as human beings. They viewed them as the faceless subjects of a demon, and that we needed to, you know, rid the world of this demon. And what, you know, as as Madeleine Albright said, you know, 500,000 dead children, that's a price we're willing to pay. Who in God's name says something like that? If we're talking about 500,000 American children, no politician would get away with that statement. If we're talking about 500,000 white European children, no politician would get away with that statement. But we're talking about 500,000 brown Iraqi children um faceless children, children that we didn't attach a human uh you know condition to. Um and this is why the war happened, because the American people were disassociated from the humanity that is Iraq and was Iraq. Uh, they allowed Iraq to be personified in the in in the singularity of Saddam Hussein. Um, and, and this is why we supported that war, uh because Saddam was evil. And even afterwards when we found that there was no weapons of mass destruction, um, you know, a good portion of Americans say, well, we were justified in going in because Saddam Hussein was evil and we had to get rid of him. They never talk about the millions of Iraqis who died or were wounded or displaced because of this war again, because they're not humans. They're faceless brown entities. Uh, they don't exist in the minds of the Americans. Or if they do, we demonize them. We we, we dehumanize them by calling them ragheads um, and other slurs that are just horrible. So, no, I, I I don't think America was uh, conditioned to, uh, to stop that war. I think America wanted that war. I think America needed that war because war is what defines America in the eyes of many people. It's, it's an assertion of our national pride, our national strength, our ability to go around the world and kick people's butt apparently is that which defines us. And that's a sad statement. <laughs> I think you and I believe, and many of us believe here, as long as Saddam's at the helm, there is no reasonable prospect. You or any other inspector is ever going to be able to guarantee that we have rooted out, root and branch, the entirety of Saddam's program relative to weapons of mass mass destruction. And you and I both know, and all of us here really know, and it's the thing we have to face, that the only way, the only way we're going to get rid of Saddam Hussein, is we're going to end up having to start it alone, start it alone, and it's going to require guys like you in uniform to be back on foot in the desert, taking the son of a, the uh, taking Saddam down. You know it, and I know it. So I think we should not kid ourselves here. There's stark, stark choices.
0: That was a much younger Joe Biden speaking as a senator on the Foreign Policy Committee to Scott Ritter, who was called to testify about his involvement as a chief weapons inspector and his decision to abandon that role, claiming he wasn't getting the necessary support. His remarks seemed to indicate Hussein would never give up his chemical weapons, no matter how many inspectors went into Iraq, and he seemed gung-ho about aggressively going after him. I asked Scott Ritter to share his thoughts about Biden. Well, first
5: of all, remember that this was not a conversation. This was a monologue by Joe Biden. Um, and as a typical American politician, he took advantage of this monologue to try and um, you know, tie me in, use me as a, uh, as a vehicle to legitimize his position. Uh, the purpose of my, my, the sole purpose of my testifying before the United States Senate was to get the United States either to fully support the work of the inspectors so that we could finish the task of disarming. And remember, if that's my position, that means inherently I don't agree with Joe, what Joe Biden said. I agree that we can disarm Iraq. I believe that if Iraq was uh, compelled um, by the will of the international community to fully comply with the work of the inspectors, That if the inspectors were carrying out their work true to the mandate given to them by the Security Council and not allowing that mandate to be abused or corrupted by the United States for the purpose of removing Saddam Hussein from power, that we could have disarmed Iraq. Indeed, the reality that we know today is that Iraq was disarmed as of 1991. In the summer of 1991, we now know Iraq destroyed everything because of the pressure being brought bear by the inspectors. So inspections did work. What didn't work was when the international community um, created the conditions that caused Iraq not to trust the inspectors. Uh, For instance, in 1996, the United States used my inspection team as a vehicle to insert CIA agents whose task was to foment a coup d'etat against Saddam Hussein. Iraqis were fully aware of this. They knew that the U.N. had been corrupted. They knew we were being used as an intelligence front. They knew that the intelligence we were gathering was being used by the United States to target their president. This is why they stopped cooperating. On technical issues, the Iraqis always cooperated with the inspectors. It was only when our inspections touched on the sensitive areas of Iraqi national security that they balked, because not because they said we didn't have a right to ask the questions, but they believe that their access empowered the United States to kill their president. So my whole posture was, let's make inspections work. The way you do that is to be honest about the inspections and to tell Iraq right up front that if you don't comply, there will be a price. Uh, And that price could be war. But the best way to avoid war is let the inspectors do their job, both on the part of Iraq and the United States and the other nations. That was my message. It was clear that Biden didn't want to hear that message. Biden was a man who believed in regime change. Biden was a man who believed that Saddam Hussein was the personification of evil. Biden was a man who believed that we had to use whatever means necessary up to and including war to remove Saddam Hussein from power. And Joe Biden recognized that weapons inspections, if allowed to proceed, would undermine his effort. This is why he had to discredit the inspections. This is why he had to say that inspections stood no chance. Because if you let the inspectors in and they do their job, sanctions will be lifted and there will be no case for war. The inspectors and the inspections they carried out, the greatest threat to American foreign policy. And that's what Joe Biden was telling the world when he made that monologue in September of 1998.
0: So with Biden now in the White House as president of the United States, uh, you know, given his uh, regime change leanings, I guess, what kind of foreign policy will he embark on? I mean, will he be Will he let up a bit, uh, or, or will he attempt a war on Iran or, or Russia? Uh, I mean, is he more hawkish or less hawkish than his predecessors? What are, what are your thoughts in that regard?
5: Well, my thoughts are that Joe Biden is a man who has a 47-year history of uh, service in the United States Senate as Vice President of the United States. Uh, the man we elected as president, we being the nation, elected as president, um, has not changed. He's that same man, that same guy. So, he's a politician who lies through his teeth. He's a politician who cannot be trusted at all. He's a politician who will claim to want to pursue diplomacy while creating the conditions that only result in war. Um, We see this in Afghanistan, where he has a perfect opportunity to bring an end to this 20-year conflict. All he has to do is comply with the terms and conditions of the February 2020 peace agreement signed by the United States and the Taliban to get all American and foreign troops out of Afghanistan by May of this year. Joe Biden is not going to do that. He is going to deliberately create the conditions for a resumption of war between the Taliban and the United States, thereby creating the need for even more troops to deploy to Afghanistan. So we continue this 20-year record of failure. The same thing can be said about Syria, uh, where he is, you know, doubling down on the American presence in Syria, although he can't articulate any legitimate reason for us to be there. Uh, you, you see this with Iran. He does not want to rejoin the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Program of Action, the Iran nuclear deal, even though he has said during his campaign that that would be one of his top priorities. He doesn't want to do that because to do that would be to allow Iran to have a nuclear enrichment program, at least for civilian use, the United States and Israel has said cannot be allowed to exist. So Joe Biden will allow this deal to fail, knowing that that may lead to armed conflict. We see this with Russia and his hyper-aggressive stance on Russia. We see this with his hyper-aggressive stance on China. Uh, Russia and China are two nations that aren't going to be pushed around. Um, you know, Joe Biden somehow thinks that if he stands on the bully pul- pulpit, pounds it enough times and shouts at the top of his lungs that America is back, somehow the world will fall to its knees and bow. Um, those days are over. So I, I think Joe Biden is a very dangerous president well, with, a, with a dangerous um, history of pursuing the military option. Uh, but that day is, is past us. He may get away with you know, bombing Syria, bombing Iraq, bombing Afghanistan, maybe even bombing Iran. He's not gonna get away with bombing Russia or China. Um, I think the days of um, unopposed uh, American hegemony are gone. And uh, Joe Biden will be you know, one of the last presidents who uh, tries to um, forcefully assert you know, this so-called rules-based international world order that the United States created at the end of the Second World War uh, to continue to force this on the international community. Uh, the world's fed up with it. Uh, the day of the, of the American singularity, unilateral superpowers, is, is, is past.
0: Well, uh, Scott, I, I got one more question for you. Um, over the last couple of weeks, uh, the show has been focused on uh, wars that started in March often enough that, uh, we should ask why uh, you're a military man. Uh, I mean, look, Iraq, Yugoslavia, Syria, Libya, Yemen, uh, they they all generally begin in March. So what is it about March that leads people to go to war as opposed to say, I don't know, July or November or other months?
5: Well, wars are, um, are, are an extension of politics. That's what, you know, first of all, we have to understand that, that, uh, most wars are wars of um, of convenience, meaning that wars of choice. Um, it's, you know, especially when a superior power is attacking an inferior power, um, it's a choice being made by the superior power. It's not an act of self defense. It's not as though the United States had to attack Iraq because Iraq was poised to invade it or something of that nature. So it's a it's political. So it's held prisoner to you know a, a political calendar. That is driven much like everything else, where um, you know, for instance, elections are held in November. Um, you know, so political decisions are shaped by elections. Uh, that the outcome of the election helps determine policy, and then you know, the execution of a military plan has to proceed from that point in time. And March just happens to run into the you know, the approximately two and a half month time it takes to turn political will into military action. So um, I, I think, you know, that's what we're seeing here. It's, you know, March is actually not an ideal month to go to war in many parts of the world. Um, you know, in, in, in Europe, it's the mud season. Uh, if, you, if you go back and study World War II, uh, no tanks moved in March uh, in Russia. <laughs> it, was the, it was the mud season. And if you take a look at um, the Middle East, that's, March is when the temperature starts to get hot. Um, By by invading in March, you pretty much condemn your troops to be broiling in the hot desert sun. Um, So it's not that the military says March is the ideal time for us to go to war. It's that the politicians say March is the politically expedient time for us to go to war.
0: Scott Ritter, it's really been a treat to having you on our show. Uh, Thank you so much for your unique insights and and sharing them with our listeners. really appreciate it.
5: Well, thanks for having me.
0: That was former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, chief U.N. weapons inspector, and now columnist, Scott Ritter. Next week, we will be rerunning a past episode of the Global Research News Hour. Then, in two weeks' time, we'll air a special addendum about the war series featuring the acclaimed writer and investigative journalist, Pepe Escobar. Join us then. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalisation and produced in collaboration with campus community radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Gaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nehiyawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at